I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Maximizing Sunlight and Carbon with Intercropping, is brought to you by Yetter Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Yetter Manufacturing for sponsoring today's episode. With the tradition of providing farmer solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Guest in Indiana no-tiller Jason Mock captures maximum sunlight and carbon using what he calls his constant canopy system of relay, intercropping cash crops and cover crops, and integrating manure on his 3,100-acre farm. He spoke at the National No-Tillage Conference in January of 2020. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer podcast series, I caught up with Jason by phone, and he shared some details about how his ever-evolving system works and some of the experiments he's been implementing to utilize the abundant manure generated by the 12,000 hogs in his operation, as well as his creative approaches to row spacings, equipment, and the future of ag technology. Here's Jason. I farm in Gaston, Indiana with my family, my grandpa and two uncles and cousin. We farm around 3,100 acres and have 12,000 pigs. We'll have some cattle. And we're mostly in a corn and soybean rotation with some weed. I've started to integrate more weed and more relay wheat and soybeans and doing some other experiments with polycropping. And then Constant Canopy Farms is now about 400 acres. And we are doing uh, some makers on our own to increase the uh, relay cropping, polycropping, and we're doing some custom acres with that. Okay. So, yeah, talk about the Constant Canopy system. That's sort of separate from the rest of your operation? Yeah, I'm trying to integrate it in the farm. It's been about a four-year journey of not knowing the answers myself. And as of, you know, I change things every year to... Uh, try to optimize the uh, economics somewhat. And um, now I'm pretty comfortable with where I want to go or trying to design some equipment to kind of speed up and scale it. The big picture is we're trying to uh, develop a system with, with the area of manure, uh, processing the manure, getting it down to the nutrients and carbon, and then installing that into a cover crop and polycrop system. So as you go north and east, uh, there's just abundance of livestock, a lot of hogs and uh, poultry and, and dairy, and, and we just literally have manure coming out of our ears. And uh-huh. uh, <laughs> Farmers are really good at production, and uh, so in the late 90s, kind of these confined feeding operations kind of took over, and, and now we just, uh, we, our distribution's kind of messed up. Uh, so we're trying to find a kind of a solution for mostly an environmental project, but also just Efficiencies, we, we shouldn't be putting fertilizer in places when we have plenty in the area, trying to figure out how to distribute that a little bit better. And the initial motive was to utilize our manure on our farm a little bit better. So that's why I started doing the, uh, I was applying manure underneath the wheat rows and, and doing different things with that. And it went to, well, we're doing different crops, different cover crops, and then 
I kind of reconnected with an old college friend to start kind of a bigger project uh, from a more regional standpoint of working with a group of farmers uh, to make kind of a central uh, digester. We're looking at project to a wedding venue and golf, and I want to recreate kind of the Gabe Brown uh, farming thing just on a, a smaller 80-acre farm. Uh, ag tourism and go in a lot of different directions, but it's just turned into a, a network of collaboration and that kind of stuff. Oh, all right. And yet there is a, a relay cropping aspect of it. Yes, yes. Okay. I, I'm really intrigued with relay cropping. I, I mean, honestly, we, we, we pour all this heart and soul into growing one crop our best. And I think it's the low hanging fruit is to grow two crops at once. Uh-huh. And it's okay. much uh, easier to a make a profit and then uh, be able to implement cover crops and all kinds of things. Uh, it's all about mm-hmm. compromise and, and time and space. Okay. So can you give an example of how you're growing a couple of crops together? Yeah. So honestly, it started with being frustrated with growing monocrops. I, I, I was a landscape contractor in my 20s and came to the farm and it didn't make much sense we were growing one crop. And what was really a struggle, we were having wet springs. You know, I, I thought we could probably combat some of this uh, water uh, through just managing through consumption. So start growing wheat and soybeans together. And as that cropping has kind of evolved, I figured out, okay, we need to have more of this Amazon mentality where, you know, water, nutrients, and sunlight are the money, not so much looking at crop yields and just trying to max that out. So starting to figure out that we can use wheat to consume water, uh, control weeds in space, and actually make the other crop grow better. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last two years, we're actually increasing our soybean yields, growing wheat with it at the same time. And that went off to corn and soybeans. And it's, it's really interesting uh, the way I kind of learn. I, I kind of have this incubator mentality where we try things at a relatively small scale, but we don't just try one experiment. We try tens or hundreds different wrinkles in the system and kind of uh, learn and, and, and change the next year. And we've kind of settled on this 60 inch rows, okay. uh, but instead of single rows, we're, we're, we're either growing four rows at once or kind of a zero spacing idea. And this is really technical, but I'm really into uh, the golden ratio, which is one and 1.618. So if you if you go to wide rows and the rows are themselves are wider, you can empower the solar angles. So we're trying to get uh, kind of this 20, 40 inch rows flip flop around in intercropping. It's basically, you're 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 giving room for traffic lanes and you're giving room for sunlight to penetrate the intercrop. We're not quite maximizing wheat yield. We don't really care so much. We're just all about contribution margin. Uh, so our costs are a little bit smaller per crop, but kind of uh, leveraging the curve. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit more about the 20, 40, and 60-inch plots? And what did you learn from that? Well, I started with twin 30-inch rows. Uh, another farmer was doing that. I found it just wasn't enough uh, sunlight, solar angles to drive the inner crop. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a waste of money, honestly, mm-hmm. to try to grow a bean crop underneath that. So the next year we went to 37.5 inch rows hmm. and they grew a little bit better, gave up a little bit of wheat yield, but the beans still kind of ran out of water. So then we kind of went to 60 inch rows and so on 60 inch centers, 
but the actual rows themselves are 20 inches wide. That gives us a 40 inch gap where we can get more sunlight down in between the wheat rows. The spacing is always a little bit confusing. Most of my spacing is in 60 inch rows and then it's just 60 inch on center. So when I say 20 inches wide, it means the 60 inch row is 20 inches wide. So like okay, our wheat, sure. we're planting four yeah. consecutive rows. The actual wheat plant is uh-huh. 20 inches wide on the ground floor. So when it grows and excites, it grows horizontally. So I need to be that wide to have a gap for sunlight for soybeans, but I can get a massive amount of wheat on that row because it kind of grows in this kind of half circle deal. So the wheat seeds themselves are not like in a single line is what you're saying. Exactly. There's four of them. Okay. Yeah. So instead of four rows drilled, I Uh had an air seeder where the outside rows were seeded with an air seeder. Okay. And then in between those two rows, I had a strip till unit that broadcast the seed and incorporated in the soil with the biochar and fertility. Okay. To kind of put all that energy underneath the row mm-hmm. in the root zone. What's the strip-till rig that you're using? It's a Don Pluribus and Duo Seed. Okay. So on the you first know. year, we actually seeded our wheat with our manure tanker. And that's, a, I think, a novel idea that we'd like to put some technology behind. Uh, uh-huh. We can just drive the wheat only off of uh, hog manure and uh, grow it for extremely cheap. And then we place the soybeans in between and we use, basically we use the wheat for, it's kind of like pattern tile. So I'm kind of a math dork. <laughs> I like to look at these ratios and your, your wheat consumes about an acre inch of water for every three bushels of wheat that you produce. So in our area, we get about 40 inches of rain. The moisture in the spring is usually a liability. Your young roots really have a tough time holding under the root hairs under saturated soil conditions. So in the 20 and 40 inch row schematic, the soybean is placed 10 inches away from the wheat root. So the wheat really helps infiltrate the water and the soybean can follow the wheat roots that are already well established two or three foot deep. Mm -hmm. So it kind of makes this favorable environment for the soybeans that can take on the stress of extreme temperature variations, too much rainfall, and just grow better, but still have plenty of light for them to flourish. And I wonder if you can just go back for a second. You were talking about seeding wheat out of a manure tank. Can you Yeah, so we did that three that years ago. Uh-huh. Yeah, so I, I noticed um, we were draglining manure and then planting monocrop wheat, and you could just see the strips where the manure was injected. Mm-hmm. Uh, the wheat would grow two or three times taller in that area in the fall especially when we started getting cooler. So I designed just a, basically just put together a, a gandy box and, and a deflection plate and just dropped the wheat seeds right above the manure injection site. Took half the shanks off and then installed them in 60 inch rows. Hmm. And what we were seeing was the wheat roots would go down into the manure and they would change their physiological makeup. They, they would tiller extremely in that space. So if, if a wheat seed had three or four inches of space from another wheat seed, it would put on 15, 20, 30 tillers. And as spring would come around, that wheat would grow more horizontally like crabgrass and you would get multiple wheat heads per plant. I was really worried about the wheat lodging. So we did a lot of population studies, uh, anywhere from 
18 to 25 pounds. And the wheat just kind of grew out like a, uh, a bush, kind of making this arch. What's interesting in our context, it's all context, uh, once you've had livestock for several years, your, your nutrient levels go up, especially phosphorus. So we didn't really feel the need to pay a custom dragline guy a penny a gallon to apply manure that really wasn't needed. So by eliminating the shanks and driving as fast as I possibly could, I could lower my rate and just locally feed that wheat. So instead of spending, say, $50 an acre, I could do it myself for about 15 put $10 a wheat seed and be at a net negative cost of $25 per acre. We broke a state record that year on our soybean yields in our plot, 108.6 bushels per acre. And uh, they got me excited. Um, we did 17 varieties, uh, relay versus monocrops. Mm-hmm. And the relay won on every single one except our early bean where I started harvesting and I broke a few off before I really knew what I was doing oh. on the harvesting side. But done that two years of comparing the two systems and relay has a tremendous um, increase on yields. And it's not so much top end as more as it's just a more even stand and a more even yield across the field by managing plant health, keeping a hold of those root hairs, kind of starting nodulation earlier, just a healthier plant mm-hmm. with its big brother right next to it. Also, I might add, so you've got a cereal, you got, you're kind of creating this agronomic algorithm. So your, your cereal is going to wake up as soon as you know, the weather breaks in late February or March. It's going to start actively growing. So when you place that soybean seed in there in April, it's going to require so much heat for that soybean to emerge when that time the wheat's going to grow. But at the same time, it's photosynthesizing, it's exuding those sugars in the soil for the microbiology. So it's been, so you've kind of awoken the soil and you have just so much more soil life in that area. I, I just think, I think this cohabitation thing is really interesting. You know, we, we're kind of doing that in our cover crops, but when we're terminating it, and then coming in, I don't think we're getting the same benefit. It's figuring out a compromise where two of them can grow together mm-hmm. for 75 or 80 days. Mm-hmm. I think it's a beautiful thing when you start growing these two crops at once. And so what about the corn? The wheat, we're on our uh, fifth year now. And the, the corn and beans, this is my second year this summer, upcoming the third year. I've changed that quite a bit. Uh, the first year we did 60-inch single row corn and 20, 40-inch beans in between. Okay. And uh, seen some interesting things, but uh, as far as your your solar corridor, it was a little bit too little of light, and the beans really uh, grew tall and and kind of uh, stringy the first year. And I met a guy from Virginia named James Bates, and he was a plant breeder from Hawaii, and he was experimenting with uh, using crops to actually cool the other crop. Hmm. And a little bit different idea, instead of trying to get anywhere near uh, normal corn yields, he started putting uh, gaps in the corn plants themselves and really driving corn plant population down to five, 6,000 plants per acre. Okay. What that allows you to do is plant two plants and then have a large gap, say three or four feet, and then plant two plants and, and make these very large solar corridors. So as the sun changes positions through the day, it changes the, the shadows that are casted on the intercrop on the ground floor in this uh-huh. situation, soybeans. They still get plenty of ambient light, plenty of direct light. They just get a little bit of breaks through the course of the day. 
and they're not driven vegetatively to, to compete for light. So they stay relatively short oh. and you can maintain soybean yields and completely milk the curve on the corn. And when I say milk the curve, same thing with wheat and corn. Corn has usually 28 or 30 leaves, uh, 14, 15 nodes. And in a monocrop situation, they're driving all their energy off the top two leaves or maybe the top four leaves. Hmm. Where if you really thin that down, then all 28 or 30 leaves are empowered with sunlight, uh, photosynthesizing. You turn that five horsepower Briggs and Stratton engine to a V8 and it will... Increase energy per plant, so you'll trigger three, four, five years per plant. Oh. Uh, the ears will grow big, fill out to the top, plenty of moisture, and then it can kind of live off that legume later, fixating nitrogen into the oh. soil, and uh, we can lower our nitrogen needs totally. And again, we're not shooting for top yield, uh, but you start seeing this relationship where, okay, let's say normal corn yield would be 200 bushels per acre. If you plant one-fifth of that, you're not going to get 40. You may get 80 or 100. So you're increasing plant yield two, three, or four times depending on your schematic. So that can drive down your input costs, and you, and you capture more light per day, especially right. later in the year. And so then how are you harvesting that? Are you harvesting them separately? We've done it separately. We, we uh, designed a way to harvest our wheat and push the soybeans down. A company in uh, Canada called Flexifinger developed a, a thing to snap on the grain head. But I'm really driven to be able to harvest them together and then separate the seed. And there's a company in Minneapolis, I can't think of the top of my head, but he's designed, it's been around for years, a uh, spiral separator where you oh. use the attributes of the two seeds. So your soybeans are circular and put in a spiral, it's going to gain momentum and shoot out. Your corn is flat, has more friction, ah. and you can separate a sub-2% with, without electricity, just a mechanical separator. Ah. It's interesting. The spacing of the corn reminds me of the old check wire corn. Exactly. Yeah, that's so And that's interesting. what's really interesting. I think as you plug in some of these older hybrids, they're kind of bred to flex a little bit more. Oh, okay. Um, so if you're spending, you know, $110 an acre to really push that corn plant population, if you cut that and, and you know, buy six and then start plugging in some cheaper hybrids. And, uh, and then what we're developing on the manure side are uh, biochar and humix and be able to charge and inoculate that with the ammonium in the air in our barns mm -hmm. and coat a corn seed. And the idea is if we can kind of put that astronaut food if you will, just around that corn seed, then it should have all the energy to be able to really rock it out of the ground. And now it can capture sunlight and live off the legume. And we think we can just grow bushels of corn for, I mean, just a fraction of, of normal cost. Hmm. That's a completely different mindset. And it's not really uh, follows the rules of, of everyday plain Jane commodity driven acres. But uh, right. it's really exciting when you start plugging in the numbers of cost and, and revenue. And uh, did you say, so how do the yields turn out then in this kind of system? Well, I'm still scatterbrained on the whole thing. So we're in our spectrum analysis years right now, and we're going to do some bigger scaled fields next year. But okay. I pulled off at just a 15-foot by 375-foot section this year that had multiple different experiments within the experiment, if you will. <laughs> and we had 196 bushels and about 50 to 52 uh, bushels of it with soybeans. 
The majority of the experiment was low population corn in 60 inch rows and 20, 40 inch soybeans. So I put the corn down to 11,200. Mm-hmm. And then I started making gaps. So I would have six consecutive corn plants and five, then four, then three, then two, and diamond pattern that throughout to see the relationship of how it changed the soybeans. Uh-huh. And the soybeans really dramatically changed their genetic expression as we put bigger gaps in the, the soybean nodes increased from 12 or 13 up to 17 or 18 and June planted soybeans and became shorter. Um, We were late this year, so all the experiments were a little bit different than a normal growing season, but I'm pretty excited on what we can do and kind of put some little bit technology behind it, start putting skips in our our planter, our V drive, and be able to kind of scale this up. And you start integrating things like, uh, you know, just controlled starter where we only score starter only where the corn seeds are or seed coated energy. I think we can drive our nitrogen needs extremely local and extremely low per bushel. Okay. Wow. Okay. So now you are using this manure biochar and this is from your hogs? It is not yet. Oh, okay. So we are working with a company called Ecochar. They've done a lot of work, especially in Europe. There's several countries you cannot apply raw manure to the field. So this technology has kind of been over there. It's moved to the States here in the last few years. And there's a uh, farm called Riverview Farms in southern Indiana. And we've been using the turkey manure biochar oh. uh, this fall as a seed coating. And uh, in our strip-till seeder machine, we kind of design with uh, zone equipment. And hopefully by be the fall of 2021, we'll be producing biochar, um, three or four or 5,000 tons of it per year. And so what is the benefit of using this biochar as opposed to manure, other nutrients? Well, first and foremost, it's more of an environmental solution. So we just have a distribution problem. Um, Our poultry and chicken has been able to distribute because it's not a high percentage of, of moisture. So they've really marketed that to the organic space. But if you're dealing with hog manure, it's not economically feasible to move it more than five miles. So it's problem has kind of manifested. So um, it's a way to dewater it. To start from the beginning, our system basically takes a manure. We, we produce renewable natural gas through a digester. Mm-hmm. Out of the digestate, we squeeze out the nitrogen and potassium in an effluent along with some humics and micros, and then get potable water that we can put back in the crops or back through a livestock barn. Mm-hmm. And then we burn those phosphates and organic um, nutrients into biochar, which is a gasification process that robs it from oxygen. It basically just burns it down to non-water soluble phosphorus and carbon. The carbon is very interesting when you can get it in a condensed state. It has both positive and negative charge, so it absorbs a copious amount of nutrients. And once you inoculate it or charge it, you can be placed in the soil, and it can feed a crop for generations. The carbon's going to stay in there for thousands of years. It's really a way to kind of fix our distribution, use it around nutrients, and really improve water quality at scale and be able to quickly change the soil characteristics, especially with a system that keeps a living root, you know, in the soil at all times. Is there some way that you're quantifying how that soil is changing? If you go back in time, there's a, uh, 
it's called the Terra Preta soils in South America. When they were taking down the rainforest, probably to make more soybeans, uh, they found these Terra Preta soils. And an ancient civilization was using char with a manure over thousands of years, and they had built up feet of topsoil, of black, high-carbon soil. And I thought CECs only went up to a 100, and they found these CCs to be in the thousands, wow. which means it has tremendous holding capability, basically enough nutrients to never need any type of, of nutrients applied. Oh. And um, wow. there's, there's some of that seen even in, uh, you know, in the Great Plains in South Dakota where we had the buffalo and the Indians burning it off, not so much to the same level as the Terra Preta. You know, a lot of this has been on the small scale kind of your California hippies and hipsters have been burning in barrels for the last few years, but kind of the large scale solutions are just kind of coming about. So you do sort of anticipate cutting out extra nutrients at some point by using the system? Yeah. And a lot of livestock producers have cut down their commercial fertilizer, but because they've built say four hog barns in the same spot and applied this manure at the same Spot for years and years and years, they keep applying manure to ground that doesn't need it. Uh-huh. Um, and that's happening on scales of, you know, five or 10 counties wide in a couple regions in the Corn Belt. So it just comes down to, you know, that, that nutrient that's being applied isn't really being absorbed by the soil. It's actually being a liability or negative or, or toxifying and bonding to some of these heavy metals and lowering production of that soil. Mm-hmm. We might as well have a better use for those nutrients to a farmer doesn't have manure. And then we can take that carbon and do a lot of interesting things with it once we mix it in a lot of different applications. We can go all kinds of different directions with it. We'll get back to my conversation with Jason in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing, for sponsoring today's episode. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. Now let's get back to Jason Mock as he talks about the intersection of chicken tractors and industrial hemp. So are you applying nutrients besides the biochar and manure? So this fall, um, one of my objections was, Jason, this polycropping is cool, but you have you know, all this manure. So I like to take on the objections head on. So we started working with other farmers and we took the biochar and we, we mixed it with commercial fertilizer, uh, urea and AMS and a little bit of P and K. And we just coated that with the wheat seed and we applied it in a, a strip seeder. So what we think we can do is coat that nitrogen and keep it from gassing off or leaching away. So it'll stay right there in the soil until your plant starts to, again, you know, wake up and, and charge the soil through photosynthesis exuding, and then that nitrogen will be there. So we can place it where it needs to be in the root zone. It can be a habitat for 
you know, fungus and microbiology and then have that nitrogen on layaway. Hmm. So we're still learning a lot of biochar in a, a field scale is new. There's, there's some research out there. There's a lot of research about really being efficient when used with nitrogen, just, just kind of learning as we go. And so you did mention cover crops also. You're, mm-hmm. You are using some cover crops. Can you talk about that? So when you have the wide row wheat, you have this pretty tremendous gap that's underutilized. So we, we, we plant uh, radishes and oats. I'd like to try a lot of different things, but that's kind of where we're at now. I see. Uh, mm-hmm. To fill that voided space and that'll winter kill and kind of do a catch and release, especially with uh, manure and kind of wake that weed up a little bit. But where I'd really like to see this go is where we get into a 60 inch corn. We have a very robust uh, interseeded cover crop and then we come in and, and plant the wheat where the corn stalks were and allow that cover crop to be big and, and have more, you know, thatch and deeper roots for the next crop. But by okay. spreading it out and um, maybe compromising slightly, but having more living roots, then we're going to really, I think, uh, be able through time to maybe exodite some of the soil health stuff. And so um, you're not using a roller crimper for anything right now or anything? We have not in the past, but we are going to this year. Oh. Uh, we've got a U-Pick pumpkin patch that we're going to utilize rye and crimp that. Oh. We're going to grow hemp oh. and utilize uh, rye for wheat suppression and water drawdown. Okay. And um, we're going to do some chicken tractors in between some some hemp and maybe some other crops. Mm-hmm. That's one thing I'm really wanting to do with the biochars where we can have a living perennial. We can spread out biochar out ahead of it. And then we have this chicken coop that we can move twice a day. And the chickens will pack that vegetation and get the bugs, ingest that biochar, and then distribute their manure and manage the weeds. And I think we can value add both the livestock and the crop through kind of being transparent. And I know this is a little bit tangent here, but. The ring doorbell. You've seen the commercials where they see the intruder out there. Uh-huh. I want to have ring doorbells in our chicken coops. Oh. And the idea is you can get on some type of website and be able to buy your food and purchase it before it's ready and they can watch. So that's I think that's the next dimension above organic is complete transparent food where you can plug it into a regenerative system integrate livestock and plants and cover crops and they can see the whole thing happen. Hmm. Wow. And so you're saying the end user would be looking at the chickens through the ring doorbell and deciding which one they want to buy? Exactly. Oh, okay. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> cool. <laughs> but what it's if they get attached a to it? Minute, pick your pet. They're going to eat yeah. it. But <laughs> well, that's the thing. I'm like, I would get attached to it and then I wouldn't want to eat it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> well, that's what we want to do on this 80-acre farm is start all of this stuff mm. and have kind of a wedding venue. And then we go into the fall. I know the women love the pumpkin spice and the fur boots and get your <laughs> apple cider and all that stuff. And then we get into the, kind of the Christmas theme. And then in the whole time, we'll have all these animals out here kind of rotationally grazing and, and uh allow the public to come out and uh, kind of connect with consumers. Yeah. You mentioned hemp. So are you planning to plant seeds or transplants or are you doing the CBD? 
What are you thinking? Well, it's new to me this year. I think the CBD thing is, yeah, I, I don't want to call it a fad, but I don't think it's going to be around forever. I think, I think the future is in industrial hemp and basically building and designing and using yeah. it all kinds of different applications, but just trying to get our feet wet. I think it's been frustrating seeing some of these hemp uh, fields and they're using all this tillage and plastic and labor. And I think if we can figure out how to use plants and cover crops, kind of manage the water and weeds, we can figure out how to grow it at a much more efficient way. So we're doing two different things. We're working with an integrator to do some kind of bigger field scale and then we're going to have the chicken tractors, extremely low population, and have this kind of craft CBD. We're going to direct market it. Okay. And uh, we got kind of this idea of a, like, kind of like a U-Pick uh, Christmas tree farm where you can come out and actually take a whole darn plant away if you want. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. But we're only going to do about an acre, acre and a half that way, and then several more acres the other way. Okay. And the hemp, after it's spent from producing CBD, uh-huh. it's a very tremendous gas maker. So we can we can take um, this and put it in our digester along with the manure and some other sources oh, and okay. produce even more renewable natural gas. So let's see. You had a field with 86-day corn and pearl millet cover crop. What was that all mm-hmm. about? So we were wanting to bring the cattle out there. I'm going to try it again this year. We had a bunch of rain, and that's an excuse we should have. Didn't do it. But the agronomy worked pretty well. So in 60-inch corn, you can drive your cover crop basically the whole time. In 30-inch corn, your cover crop gets established, and then the corn takes all the light, and the cover crop kind of goes dormant. Mm-hmm. So the the thinking with the 86-day corn was we could plant the, curl, the, the pearl millet at about V5, and then by the time it grew tall enough to really rob moisture from the corn, the corn was really fast, being an early maturity to uh, pollinate, and it would be more in the sweet corn and grain fill stage at that point. And that kind of played out that way, and uh, we had tons of biomass. So the heads of the pearl millet was, was taller than the corn oh. in most of the field, huh. and very thick. The weeds don't stand a chance in that stuff. And uh, okay. we used the same thing. We, we harvested the, the corn with actually a grain head and pushed the pearl millet down. Yeah, I think it would work really well to, to move the cattle out there afterwards. I know I've given you about 27 ideas already, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think one thing that we could add value in 60-inch corn and cover crops is if we developed an app and just paraded you know, livestock into farmers' fields and the technology is there to have temporary fencing. You know, if we could get that and maybe, you know, they were 10 or 15% off a yield of 30-inch rows, but if they could get more value by bringing cattle out there and getting the saliva and, you know, kind of mess with the cover crops and then the manure and, and maybe get some soil health benefits, we could kind of bridge that gap or maybe even increase value. So a while ago... I noticed that you shared an article on Twitter called Regenerative Ag, colon, the next big con, with a question mark. Uh, yeah. It was by a guy named Andrew, Andrew Gunther on Medium. And, you know, yep. basically it was talking about if you don't have a meaningful certification program, you're unlikely to make the needed reforms in the ag system. 
So I was just kind of curious, you shared that and then you made a comment of tying that to CAFOs. And I was just wondering if you could comment on that. Yeah, I don't know if this will be exactly related to that article, but what really pains me and all this stuff, I was in North Dakota and I, I spoke at a regenerative uh, farm meeting and uh, I followed Gabe Brown mm-hmm. and I respect him. I want to emulate him, but he had ended his speech for about 15 minutes talking about confined feeding operations and how they're poisoning the watershed and all this stuff. And what's really tough when you're trying to kind of collaborate and put together real world solutions, kind of form these camps. So in reality, if you can take the worst thing, and I'm not saying CAFOs are the worst thing, but uh, manage incorrectly, can have negative environmental consequences in the methane coming out and nutrients. Mm-hmm. If you can figure out a solution that makes that better and then <laughs> maybe put those nutrients or carbon in the regenerative system, you kind of create this third circle that connects the two Venn diagrams, if you will. So that's kind of the tough thing is how can you kind of take these two different schools of thought of we need to feed the world no matter what, mm-hmm. you know, pump the fertilizer and fungicide and insecticide and kill, kill, kill versus use life for life. Sure. And how does this all work together? And um, that's why I talk about the transparency of food and all this kind of stuff. Sure. I don't know if that answered your question at all. Yeah, it, it, it does. But to keep going a little bit, I'm curious what you think about a certification program specifically for regenerative ag. I've heard people talk about this and some people are very concerned about what does regenerative mean. And It's really hard to know what to do, right? Because you know, sometimes some of these systems reward if you start at the worst, you know, you go from plow with no organic matter and, and now you've kind of made the space and you get paid for your, your improvements. And then the guys that have been in the system for a long time are like, you know, what about me? I'm, you know, I'm already here, mm-hmm. you know, and how do you quantify, you know, water quality and, and just keep it on that point source, you know, that field. The whole problem is the logistics and honestly just being disconnected to consumer. So mm-hmm. it's really hard to come up with a broad acre, you know, solution, but if you can just direct market to the consumer and, and leave all the middlemen out, then it becomes pretty easy, mm-hmm. you know, being transparent. So I don't really have a solution other than farmers are just going to have to create a brand and, mm-hmm. and, and do some not only hard things in the field, but hard things as far as connecting Okay, thank you. I appreciate it so much, and we'll be in touch. All right. Thank you, Julia. All right. Thanks, Jason. Thanks to Jason Moff for sharing his experiences with maximizing the solar corridor with his constant canopy system and improving manure distribution. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. 
And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with Farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.